Would you turn with me to John chapter 8? John chapter 8, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Look with me at verse 21. We'll read through verse 30. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away. And you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Our Father, we would come to you right now. That is a precious verse, that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And those here among us who have believed who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God, come in the flesh. We thank you for that moment in which you opened our eyes, you opened our ears, you opened our hearts to believe in you. And for those perhaps who have been fooled by their own religious activity or church membership even into believing that they are saved when in fact their heart is telling them otherwise right now. We would pray that even now the gospel of Jesus Christ would penetrate and that they would see that they must have Christ. Lord, let this word embed itself deeply into our very souls this morning. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as we've been studying this section of the gospel of John, John 8 and 9, we've made a note that the great hymn writers of many ages have often taken inspiration from these texts, hymns that describe the glories of the person, the work, the the ministry, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just to be a little bit different, for this section of the gospel in chapters 8 and 9, we're highlighting great hymns which really encapsulate the truths that we see in the text concerning Christ. And we're calling this series What the Hymn Writers Know because what we're seeing that the hymn writers know and what they understand is that the truths of God in repeatable song form, they embed these realities into the core of our souls. That the singing of God's word, the proclamation in song is paramount to our Christian lives. And as a matter of fact, there is no option for the Christian. We are commanded to sing. It has nothing to do with musical ability. It has to do with whether you're a worshiper or not. When somebody says, I don't sing, then I say, then you're not a heavenly citizen because we sing and these truths embed themselves so richly 
into our souls, into our hearts. And last week we highlighted the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. And today I'd like to highlight, All I Have is Christ. All I Have is Christ. And we come now to one of so many times when Jesus confronts and teaches the apostate rulers of Israel. These are the ones who believed with all of their heart that as ethnic Jews, they were automatically in. They're automatically going to heaven. They're automatically favored by God. These were those who believed that the more man-made rules they could make up and impose on people, that that made them more holy, more righteous, more pleasing to the Lord. But in fact, these are also the ones who had actually no personal relationship with God at any level. They had no internal reality of faith. They possessed no forgiveness of God by virtue of the simple fact that they didn't believe they needed forgiveness. So, of course, they're not forgiven because they didn't think they needed it. These are the ones who outwardly said that they hoped for the return of Messiah of Christ, which is Greek for anointed one or Messiah, when in fact, when he finally came, they had no use for him and began actually plotting his death. And so Jesus explains in no uncertain terms to these leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders of Israel, that they are completely inadequate for the kingdom of Christ. They are disqualified. They are unprepared. They think that they have everything they need in their own good works, and as a matter of fact, they have nothing. They are in the situation described in the hymn that we just sang, All I Have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. And that's where they are. That's where they stand at this moment. And these unrepentant, self-righteous men lost in the darkness of their own sin, they're going to turn their noses up at the only one who can actually save them. And for most, if not all of the men listening to Jesus in John 8, 21 through 30, they are without hope because they will not repent. But I think this text is very instructive to us concerning our own need for Christ. And so to kind of turn this around to instruct us, we can observe four needs that only Christ can fill. Four needs that only Christ can fill. And these are very simple. First, you need Christ's life. Second, you need Christ's world. Third, you need Christ's death. And finally, you need Christ's authority. So you need Christ's life, his world, his death, and his authority. This text will be extremely useful to us, I believe, this morning. First, the first need that only Christ can fill, you need Christ's life. You need his life. Now, here in verse 21, he said to them, I'm going away and you will seek me. You will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And here's the key. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? So what has Jesus done? He just fired a shot across the bow of these apostate Jews. He said, this is the warning shot. You will die in your sin. Time is running out. But what's interesting is that the Jews completely ignore the you will die in your sin part, and they focus only on the where I'm going, you cannot come part. Now, there's a real sense of irony and disrespect here at several levels when they say to one another, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. The first level of irony and disrespect is that This is sickening hypocrisy. These are the very men who are already planning 
to kill Jesus. But what was the significance of their assumption that Jesus was saying that he would kill himself? Why did they assume this? Well, when he said that where he is going, they cannot come, they assume that he is going to hell. Why? Because they also assume they are going to heaven. And so if the assumption of these leaders is that we're going to heaven, Jesus is saying, I'm going someplace that you're not going, he must be going to hell. Now, Jews abhorred the idea of someone taking his own life. As a matter of fact, the, the, the person who took his own life, his corpse was just left out. It was left unburied for a time. There was no public mourning, no official funeral. They also believed that this indicated instant judgment to the very darkest part of hell and that this person would have no part in the future kingdom. And this just shows the contempt that they had for Christ that he was worthy to be murdered by them and that since he was obviously destined for hell, then he must be about to kill himself. When in fact, Jesus is from heaven and he's going back there and he just said, you can't come. You're not invited. Listen, this is not just indifference toward Jesus Christ. This is not just some sort of neutral stance. This is out and out hatred of Christ. This is looking down on Christ. There's a sense of mocking. There's a sense of sarcasm. A a bunch of spiritual bullies all looking at each other and winking at each other like, well, we were going to kill him anyway. Maybe he'll save us the trouble. Ha, ha, ha. There's a note of condescending mockery like they think Jesus is a joke. Did you know that actually they have it exactly backwards? God thinks that they are a joke. Do you know that? Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, Hebrew, Messiah, Greek, Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. They are the joke. And it is God who laughs at their arrogance these men are caught up in the deadliest of all spiritual deceptions this the deception of self-righteousness the deception that i can have an objective view of myself the belief that by their good deeds they continue to impress god with this intricate legalistic religious system that they had come up with themselves but in fact their self-righteousness will be exactly what dooms them the apostle paul said this of apostate jews In Romans 10, verse 3, he said, Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And the irony here, one that I believe will haunt these men for all of eternity, is that the righteousness of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, which they do not possess and which they desperately need, was literally standing right in front of them right in front of them. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, a life wholly pleasing to God, his Father, and all they had to do was simply confess and ask, oh, Lord Jesus, our Messiah, we have lived filthy, wretched lives. Would you trade your perfect life for my disgusting one? And what would Jesus have said? He would have said, yes, I will. 
Because this is a major part of what we call the doctrine of justification, the exchange of a sinless life of Christ for my sinful life. And God offers this. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an exchange, what a trade, what a substitute. If only they had asked. We must have Christ's life because we can't justify ourselves. The writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 20 verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody can do that. Listen, your life will fail you if you think that you can present your life as something of merit to God, he'll simply look at the first time you sinned and he will quote from the book of James and say that if you have broken one of my laws, you're guilty of all of them and you're done. How old were you when you committed your first sin before any of us can remember? Your life will fail you. You need Christ's life. There's a second need that only Christ can fill. You need Christ's world. You need his world. Verse 23 says, He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now the Jews recognized an upper heavenly realm and a lower earthly realm. And Jesus used this belief to be more detailed with them that the upper realm is the realm of God, the lower realm is the realm of humanity, of mankind. And what is this? By the way, this is a clear claim to deity. That Jesus is from the realm of God, and these men are merely from the realm of humanity. Now, the idea of world, you, you can't just run by that word without stopping for a moment. The idea of world is extremely important in the New Testament, and it doesn't always mean the same thing. There's several things that it can mean depending on the context. First of all, it can simply mean the earth, the globe. Matthew twenty four fourteen, in this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's just the earth itself, the actual, the actual globe. It can also mean all of those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ in every age. Did you catch that? All those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ in every age. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is Jesus talking about here? All who will come to faith in him. 1 John 2, 2, he, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what does this mean? It can't mean that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of every human being because propitiation, it's a big word, but it means the satisfaction of the wrath of God. And if Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of every human being who's ever lived, that means the wrath of God is satisfied by Christ for every human being, and that is heresy. Jesus preached very, very clearly that's not the case. We adhere strongly to what we call limited or particular atonement, that Christ died for those who will believe. That's one sense of world. It can mean the earth. It can mean those who come to faith in Christ in every age. But particularly in John's writing, world can mean the invisible, evil, spiritual system 
which opposes God's redemptive plan in his kingdom. It's, it's the, the system of the world that is everything that we don't like, everything that is opposed to God. This is what 2 Corinthians 10.5 calls every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You ever watch a, a news show and they, they bring a talking head on there, a guy who dresses up well or a woman who dresses up well and they have a microphone on her and, and, and they've got a nice background usually with you know something from Washington, D.C. or something to make it look like they actually know something. And because they speak and because there's a title running across the bottom of the screen, we say, oh, he must really know what he's talking about. She must really be an expert. What is that? That's simply a lofty opinion. This is what John explained in 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This sense of world, this is the pursuit of materialism, of humanism, of evolutionism, of immorality of every kind, of pride, of selfishness, of liberalism, of feminism, of LGBTQRSTL, whatever all the letters we add now. All of those things are lies. And they're all part of the world. They all contain empty promises that are hedonistic in nature. It's a horrific trap such as sexual immorality. It's the deadly snare of money for the sake of money. It's the lethal ploy of achievement for achievement's sake. All of which leave out God and don't deal with the sin problem of mankind. And what do you get when you pursue the world? The very best you can hope for is at the end of your life to be able to sing the Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way. Then you close your eyes, you die, and you go to hell. That's all. That's what the world offers. It is an empty promise. This is antagonism toward God. It's antagonism toward his son. This is what James said when he warned in James 4, verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So do you understand that when Jesus said you are of the world, he just drew a line in the sand and he said, step over it. He said, you are an enemy of God. Instead, he gives them the answer. It's himself. He says, I am from above. I am not of this world. What should these men have said? They should have said, oh, Jesus, may it be that we can be with you in your world because our world has failed us. May it be that we would never leave your side. And in fact, if they had repented, that's precisely what he would have promised them. He promised all who believe in him. He said in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always. He said in Hebrew 13, 5, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. First Thessalonians 4, 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, that is Christ, in the air. And listen to this promise. And so we will always be with the Lord that his world will be our world. Or, as he said so poignantly in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if I go away, I'll come back and bring you to where I am. I'll take you to my world. Your life will fail you. Your world will fail you. We have a third need that only Christ can fulfill. You need Christ's life. You need Christ's world. You need Christ's death. You need his death. Verse 24, 
I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And now we've hit the raw nerve of the Gospel of John, that they must believe. 98 times in the Gospel of John, we're told that to be saved from sin, we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1, verse 12, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John three eighteen, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And what is it that must be believed? What is the content of faith that we're talking about here? Well, first, one must believe that Jesus is God and is from God. He's already established this when he claimed to be from above. That's saying, I am from God. I am God. But second, what must you believe? Well, I want you to notice a very clear theme in verse 24. Die in your sins, die in your sins. The Jews had a very clear understanding that the cost of sin is death. Now, how do we know that they understood this? Well, it's very simple. They were continually sacrificing animals. They were killing animals that served as a temporary substitute for their own eternal punishment. But they had to keep repeating these sacrifices because, as Hebrews 10, verse 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so when Jesus said, you will die in your sins, what he's telling them is that you will be your own sacrifice. You will be sacrificed for your own sin. Well, what other choice did they have? Well, they could believe that Jesus would die for their sins. Now, Jesus was not going to kill himself, but he would voluntarily lay down his life at the hands of wicked men for the payment of sin. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as a payment. Jesus said in John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. Listen, these leaders believed with all of their heart that at the moment of their death, they would be in the presence of God. They're partly right, but they're eternally wrong about the result. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Instead of their deaths being a moment of triumph over sin, it would be the moment they are condemned by God to pay for their sin. And they have only two choices. It's the same two choices offered to all of us. Either you can die in your sin or Christ can die in your place as if he had committed all your sins. In other words, you can die in your sin or Christ can die in your sin. And if they will not receive sin's payment from Christ, the deaths of these leaders will fail them. Listen, there will be no more chances, no more explanations. The, the lie of some sort of in-between place like purgatory or limbo, it gives the false impression of a second chance. There are no second chances after death. That's it. When the line goes straight, when the heart stops, when the breathing is done, there are no more chances. There are no explanations. There are no 
times to explain to God how wonderful your life was. Your life will fail you. Your world will fail you. Your death will fail you. So far, we're 0 for 3. We don't have anything to offer. There's a fourth need that only Christ can fill. You need his life, his world, his death. Finally, you need Christ's authority. You need his authority. Verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Now, in the Greek text, when they say, who are you? You is in what's called the emphatic position. It means essentially that they're saying, who do you think you are? It is arrogant. It is sarcastic. It's rude. It's condescending. And so Jesus, never one to just take an insult, he says, what have I been telling you for the last couple of years? Haven't you been listening? Then he says something that should have scared the sandals off of them. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge. They should have fainted like little girls at that moment. When will this happen? He will say these things. He will judge. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky, the world fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great like these men, and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Wow, that's terrifying. Now Jesus declares that all that he has said, all that he has done, all of his ministry has come straight from God his Father. He says in the second half of verse 26, But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They don't believe a word he's saying. So he tells them that there will be a day when they do believe. They won't believe unto salvation. They'll believe unto their own doom. He predicts that they will murder him. He calls it lifting him up. And of course, he's already predicted that he will be raised from the dead. Verse 28, here's his prediction. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you have murdered me, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. His obedience unto death his resurrection, and the fact that these things are all according to the Father's plan, these will all vindicate him and prove that he is who he claims to be, the holy, righteous, eternal Son of God, God in the flesh. By the way, do we have an instance in the Bible of a man who claimed to be religious, who claimed to know the Father, who claimed even to know the Messiah, who claimed to be close to all that is godly and all that is good, and he has a moment of horrible realization, and he comes to this moment of belief, which does not end in his salvation, but ends in his eternal judgment. He is a man that nobody names their children after, Judas. And what did he do? He committed suicide. He sent himself to hell. Some of the Jews who rejected him initially, thankfully, would later understand that they had made a horrible mistake. Several weeks after the ascension of the risen Christ to heaven, the place he said he was going all along, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preached this. 
He said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the first 3,000 members of the Church of Jesus Christ, do you understand that they were Jews who had agreed with the death of Christ? And yet in His grace, God saved them and turned their hearts around. By the way, this is what First uh, Peter and Ephesians uh, talks about. The angels are baffled by this. The angels go, how is it that these people who killed Jesus are now those who will fall on their face and worship him for all of eternity? In fact, Peter said that these are things in which angels long to look. That if you know Christ, you understand, I once was lost, but now I'm found. The fatal mistake the apostate leaders were making with Jesus was to see themselves as the ones with spiritual authority when in fact they had none. What they had need of was Christ's authority, the authority given to him by his father. And this was the fight that they had with Jesus. Everything was fine as long as they were going along, being in charge of everything and taking money from people and being the spiritual goody two-shoes for everyone. And all of a sudden this guy comes along who's doing miracles. He won't sin. How irritating is that? He's healing everybody. He's feeding people miraculously. And now there's a fight for authority because they wanted to keep theirs and he claimed to have all of it. He doesn't share it with anybody. Consider this incident. Matthew 21, beginning of verse 23. You can just listen. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question and if you can tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And so then they, they huddle up. I can picture them all with their little robes and they're all sitting there and they okay, break. And they go back. They discussed it among themselves and they said when they're in their huddle, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe in him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd for they all believe that John was a prophet. So they came back in their robes, straightened their tassels, their little hats, looked all religious. And they said, we don't know brilliant answer and he said okay neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things it was a fight for authority in fact at the end of his ministry Jesus made an audacious and a true claim Matthew 28 verse 18 Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me what actual authority did the apostate leaders of Israel have particularly over their own destiny none They didn't have any impact, no authority. They needed the authority of Jesus. Now, what is this authority? Why do you need this? Matthew 9, verse 6. Jesus heals a paralyzed man for a very specific reason. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to what? Forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise up, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
you need the authority of Christ because only he can forgive sin. There is one being in all the universe who can make you right with God, and it is Christ. These high and mighty self-righteous men no doubt saw themselves as indispensable to God, as those who would stand before God, giving laud and praise to their own achievements. I thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other rotten scoundrels all around me, when in fact... Romans 3.19 says that God will shut their mouths as he holds them accountable for every one of their sins. Do not picture that you will somehow go to heaven and stand before God as your own defense attorney. You're making the faulty assumption that God will actually allow you to speak. Their authority will fail them. You know, humanity tends to arbitrarily decide to be our own spiritual authority. We just decide to. We say, I'm a pretty good person. I've done a lot of good things. God must certainly like me. These are statements of omnipotence. These are statements of omniscience. These are statements of authoritative judgments that you don't have the right to make. Your authority will fail you. There won't be this long, glorious time when you list all of your merits before God. Peter won't be standing at the gates of heaven asking some inane trivia question that lets you into heaven. The unbeliever... The one who will reject Christ will die and immediately be placed in a hellish waiting room of sorts. It's not a place for second chances. It's just a place to wait for judgment that the New Testament calls Hades. It is a place of agony, a place of pain, a place of hopelessness, a place of flames, a place of fire. And until that final judgment day when the only one with all the authority will open the books which contains all of your sinful thoughts and deeds and words and will authoritatively judge by those things. And then final judgment will be rendered guilty, guilty, guilty on all counts. And all who have rejected him will be locked away with all of Hades into the final place of judgment that Revelation 20 calls the lake of fire. So what are we to do? Your life will fail you. Your world will fail you. Your Death will fail you. Your authority will fail you. You have nothing. You have no hope except one. Yes, your life will fail you. Your world will fail you. Your death will fail you. Your authority will fail you. But you can say this. All I have is Christ. And that's enough. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And he won't fail. Even now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, succeeding for you, interceding successfully. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And as that glorious hymn explains, as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved from me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Lord, that is our prayer this morning as we come to your table to remember your death, to remember that ultimate sacrifice that you made on our behalf in which you 
gave all that you had. You gave your very life. You left the glories of heaven, Lord. And you took it upon yourself to save us. Lord God, we would ask you now, as we remember, Father, the death of your Son, and we would ask you, our Lord Jesus, as we remember your death, and we would ask you, Holy Spirit, as you have laid it on our hearts to come carefully and with sobriety to the Lord's table, to the table of Christ. We would ask you, Father, we would ask you, Lord Jesus, we would ask you, Holy Spirit, to receive this act of worship, to see that the love that we have for you is genuine and real because you put it there. We have loved you because you loved us first. As we take these elements together, Lord, let us remember with sobriety, with joy, the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.